Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we are talking about Kevin Smith's 1999 religious fantasy Dogma. And I am joined for this very special discussion of Dogma by my favorite excremental, Rob DiCristino. Whose house? Ron's house. Said whose house? Ron's. Martin. 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 <laughs> Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm okay. How are you, Rob? Doing well. It's back to school season. Yeah, it is. We're all teachers. Let's do it. We're teachers, doing it. students, parents, everybody out there, let's get into it. Last year was awful let's make this year better <laughs> um, <laughs> throwing it down yeah last it, it was weird because i went back to a building yesterday for the first time in a year and a half and it was a very strange feeling it's super weird i uh, and again most of our listeners know a lot of members of the f this movie family are teachers and uh yeah i was off and on in the building we did sort of a hybrid model last year where we were in the building and then the kids weren't and then we were all in the building together certain days and at home other days and boy oh boy i'm just looking forward to a, just a just a regular, a regular schedule year. yeah get vaccinated everybody get vaccinated let's do this the right way yeah what could go wrong not with the vaccination, <laughs> I mean with the with the school year. Uh, I know what you mean. We'll okay, see. good. We'll see. Nothing can go I wrong hope. with the vaccination, everybody. Get vaccinated. Well, not now. It's, you know, all you FDA holdouts. <laughs> I didn't realize that there were people who were using that as their justification. Like, I'm waiting well, until apparently. it's approved by the FDA. So, anyway, now it's approved. Yay. Everybody get vaccinated. We have now carbon dated this podcast. That's it right. Is... <laughs> Remember the pandemic, everyone? Uh, oh, gosh. Well, that's been this podcast's theme for, you know, yeah. 15, 15 or 16 months now. I don't know. Um, anyway, mm. Rob, have you seen anything good lately? I have. I have. And this is a nice uh, for, for those of you who. So, so I know. All right. So I know some of you are uh, Rob episode aficionados. Of course. Um, so sh shout out to you. I know some of you skip Rob episodes. What? <laughs> fun too. Nobody skips Rob episodes. <laughs> I know you're out there. That's OK, because you're not listening to me. Um, but this is a nice little follow up. Uh, a few episodes ago, we were discussing Godzilla uh, and you recommended to me Shin Godzilla. I did. 2016 and i've been waiting patiently uh for the dvd to come down a little bit in price and i finally blind bought it uh very cheaply on amazon um and uh checked it out the other night i was texting you um, while i was watching it uh and you were right on i loved it um shin godzilla is right up my alley uh it's very much a spiritual sequel to the first one um in that the monster is a metaphor and that it's about you know Whereas the first Godzilla is kind of very much about fear of the bomb and, and Japanese culture recovering. And, and uh, Shin Godzilla is very much about bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, I couldn't stop. The first 20 minutes, I couldn't stop laughing. It's just the if you've not seen Shin Godzilla, it's very much, you know, there's this emergency that occurs. And it's just constant cutting between government officials that get more and more elaborate and their titles get more and more elaborate. And, and it's this commentary sort of on how, you know, too much bureaucracy can be inefficient and. Um, at the end of the film, the, you know, there's sort of a more positive message that's not dismissive of government, but 
very much the same sensibilities I have, which is that government is incredibly important and it can be incredibly useful when we take it seriously. If we don't treat it with respect, then we get, you know, well, just look at America in the last couple Mm -hmm. of years, you know, see how we are. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed Shin Godzilla very much. I know it's not going to, you know, the Monster Hound's probably not as not as big a fan of it, but um, for somebody like me, I, I, I it really was it very much spoke to me. I really enjoyed it. I think even the Godzilla fans are pretty high on it because it does feel like a return to form, uh, even the monster stuff. I don't know how everybody feels about googly-eyed Godzilla. I'm very entertained by googly-eyed Godzilla. Of course, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think everybody was pretty high on Shin Godzilla because again, what, what, what did we have? Otherwise we had, uh, the 2014 American one that didn't have much Godzilla in it. And we had the Roland Emmerich from 98. So Shin Godzilla felt like, uh, a breath of fresh air for Godzilla fans. And I, and I love the, the way that the Godzilla model, and I'm not sure if it was forced perspective, if it was miniature. I know there was a bit of CGI in there, um, that it had that sort of homemade feel to it. Yeah, you know, there sure. was a, there was an inherent, there was an inherent hokiness to it. It doesn't try to go photorealistic, you right. know? Um, I just, I just really enjoyed it. I, I want to, I want to, I'm excited to watch it again. That's glad awesome. I it. I'm glad you bought it too. Woohoo. Um, I'm sorry. Whose house? And then, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me check my notes here. I've got. Oh, I'm sorry. Run's house. Got it. Run's Run's house. It says right here in my notes. Run's <laughs> house. And then it says um, Martin. Then it, it says just for pages, for pages <laughs> at a time. It just says Martin over and over again. Um, next thing I'll get into. Uh, so uh, we're both fans, I think, of the Blank Check podcast. We are. Folks out there are as well. And we were t- uh, talking uh, recently about their John Carpenter series. They're just getting started uh, with their John Carpenter series. I feel like anybody who listens to us uh, will enjoy Blank Check. And they just started a uh, series on John Carpenter. Uh, and I went ahead and also blind bought and watched for the first time uh, John Carpenter's Dark Star, which I had never seen. Okay. I've only seen it once. I saw it at like a 16-hour sci-fi spectacular. So I got to see it theatrically, but that's the only time I ever saw it. And I honestly barely remember my own feelings about it. Yeah, where was the movie situated in that marathon? Uh, Early to middle. Do you happen to remember? Yeah. Early to middle, okay. Because this to me is like a 2 a.m. to 4 (laughs) a.m. Or a 2 a.m. These were not like 24-hour situations. They were like like noon to midnight or like noon to 2. So it probably showed around like 4 would be my guess. Got it. I I have nothing to add to the Dark Star uh, discussion that hasn't been repeated over and over by others. It's 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 very much a short film extended to feature length um, that sags a little in certain places. It probably I've not seen the short film. I think the short film itself is included on the DVD. I think um, I'm not sure. Or the excuse me, the Blu-ray. I think it is. I'm not sure. I haven't gone through all the features for the Blu-ray yet. Um, but it's very much a you know, it's a, it's a, it's it's what's advertised. It's sort of a funny kind of riff on 2001. Um, you know, not all of it really works, but it's great to see Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon in their early years and kind of um, developing their voices. I think there's a lot of the sort of sardonic John Carpenter humor in there, as well as the sort of Dan O'Bannon's kind of atmosphere. You know, it's very interesting, obviously, that he would 
make alien you know which is a very similar premise not a similar premise necessarily but you know certainly trapped in space something is hunting them down something is going wrong a beach ball ball, yeah very a very uh uh, a beach ball is hunting down some hippies Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's not, it's certainly not a classic, you know, I would not rank it in my top five Carpenter movies, certainly, but I really, I'm glad I finally got to see it. Uh, cause I would think it's, I think it's only one or two John Carpenter movies I hadn't seen. Um, and I know there was either an availability issue or a convenience of availability issue for years. And I didn't, I just never checked it out. But, um, I, like I said, I, I went ahead and blind bought that Blu-ray. Um, and, uh, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I'm glad I saw it. Um, do you, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a curiosity to me, you know, if you're a John Carpenter fan, uh, it's like, well, I want to see this because it's his first film and it's his student thesis and, uh, it's a comedy and he didn't make a ton of comedies. So there's a lot of reasons to want to check it out. But yeah, like you, it wouldn't be in my top five or even probably my top 10 Carpenter movies. Um, do you remember the other Carpenter that you haven't seen? Um, got me on the fly here. Let me look. Um, <laughs> let's see. Let's run through his movies. Um, right. I've seen. I'm looking at a list right now. I think I've seen everything, but because I remember a scary movie month last year, I watched Body Bags, which counts because he's got a short in there. Um, oh, Elvis. I've never seen Elvis. Oh, okay. Elvis is. I've good. never seen Elvis. Okay, I'm sure it is. I, I've always heard good things about it because yep. I remember. I think I checked off vampires and body bags last scary movie month and i think that was those are the only other there were they were the big gaps i had and then yes i never i've never seen elvis um but i will i'm sure at some point i'll check it out yeah it's good it's worth seeing can you believe we're only like a month away from scary movie month hey i started to see some of that on uh, on social media and i and i i myself was reminded and got excited about that that's that's it's very cool it's it's odd because i i i you know, and this goes back to the teacher thing. Teachers always lament that summer goes too fast. And, and I, I was fortunate enough to have a pretty good summer this year. And, and I, you know, I feel like I'm kind of ready to get back into it. But it is interesting to think that fall is just around the corner um, since especially if I can check the temperature here, it is 96 degrees uh, <laughs> yeah. just just outside Philadelphia. Uh, we're recording this at about seven o'clock in the evening <laughs> and it is still over 90 degrees outside. So it's a little... Uh, you know, it's a little interesting that fall is on its way. But Doesn't feel like no. I'm fall super yet. excited. No, I was a uh, uh, I was lucky enough as well to get a visit uh, from the great Adam Risky last week. Um, so Adam, it was in town, and we were talking a little bit, and we were talking a little bit about Scary Movie Month uh, and building, talking a little bit about what's going to be on our list this year. Yeah, and, um, I'm excited. I'm I'm real excited. I'm I'm um, this is that this is I think to me like for our readers and our listeners that this is like such a great time because everybody's getting excited, you know, right, and right, everybody's right. getting like, like people are posting their stacks of Blu-rays <laughs> that they're buying to prepare. And this is, this is the giddy time, you know, September's like scary movie month Eve, you know, it's, 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 it's great. It's, it's going to be a wonderful time. I'm very excited. Me too. I always end up starting like mid September and I won't say I burn myself out by the end of October, but I do yeah. probably burn myself out a little bit. So this year I'm going to try and be strong and not start early. And it's a skill. I mean, and, and for anybody listening who's new uh, to the site and this is your first scary movie month or you're asking, you know, what is scary movie month? Um, scary movie month, I think, is our is our hot, one of our high holidays. Yeah. Uh, it's a time where every day in the month of October you watch a scary movie and you 
come to the website and write a seven word review. Um, I think learning to, I'll say it this way, um, getting your muscle memory for scary movie month is important because as you say, some people blow out real early, you know, they watch six movies on October 1st and then by October 5th, they're tired of horror. So pace yourselves folks. Let's pace ourselves this year. Um, what's our record? For comments, do we remember? I have no idea. We'd have to ask. We gotta ask Miko. We gotta probably. ask Miko. Yeah, yeah, Miko, Miko, if you're listening, uh, in the comments, could you uh, could you drop that for us if you <laughs> if happen to remember it? Um, no, scary movie movie month is gonna be great this year. I'm really really excited for it. I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of stuff that I I don't have a lot of homework. Okay. Um, my my first few years with the site, I had a lot of homework. I think I'm just gonna go with 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 fun stuff. Um, that's a good plan. Trying to think of what what our what our what is our show going to be? What's our because I want to do a scary movie month podcast, and I I don't know what my Adam was asking me this Saturday. What do you think your scary movie month show is going to be? I don't know, folks uh, out there. If you if you have a if you have a scary movie that you'd like to hear Patrick and I discuss in the month of October, and you're not someone who skips the Rob shows, and you're and you and you are a, a Rob fan, if you're not <laughs> skipping the Rob episodes, let us know. Silent Hill All Revelations. Right. I'm definitely going to write a column on Silent Hill. Are you? Okay. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I could get through a whole podcast about it because it is dog shit. Good because I don't want to see it. It is dog shit. Yeah. Um. um yeah, right. Erica and I picked the date for our 24-hour marathon, and so I've started just jotting down titles as they occur to me uh, that I want to show as part of that. But I haven't really done any other planning necessarily i don't typically like pull out stuff that i know i want to watch in october i'm usually much more like fly by the seat of your pants moment to moment that's me uh but uh i have been writing down some stuff that we're going to watch as part of our 24 hours awesome i'm very excited i think it's going to be a really good year yeah um, one last thing i will uh throw out there it's not a new watch to me um but the other night I was in the Bond mood. I was Ooh. I was looking for some Bond. And that usually I, happens in November. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, I hope it happens this November because, good Lord, <laughs> we've been waiting for this movie for a long time. Um, uh, I remember when, when the movie was first being advertised and Ben Affleck and Anna Moss were a new a new couple. Who could forget? Minted. And Remy Malek was, was, was uh, hot off his Oscar win. Oh, Mm, best mm. actor winner he was the best actor anyway <laughs> uh so i went with an old favorite of mine i went with uh 1999's the world is not enough oh nice i like that Rosnan. one i'm a twine stan uh i am a hardcore twine stan in fact I'm, I'm going back and looking at the piece i wrote in december of 2016 defending the world is not enough yeah um i am a uh a purveyor of hot takes. Um, <laughs> I think we're, we're starting to learn this by now. I'm going to get it out there. I think the world is not enough is the best Brosnan bond. Interesting. I best Interesting. I, 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 I think and, a case could be made because I'm not as, I like Goldeneye. I'm not as high on Goldeneye as everyone. So I, I'd be willing to entertain a case for the world is not enough. And you can read that case uh, if you uh, search our site. I'm not going all the way back to 2016. <laughs> Come on. So look, and I'm I'm 
I'm as much as a goal of a Goldeneye fan. Look, I and I grew up with an N64. I I know a lot of you out there, if you're shouting at your speakers right now, are thinking to yourself, "No, Goldeneye. Goldeneye is a great game. It's a it's a it's a benchmark in the history of video games. It's a very very good Bond movie. Martin Campbell is a wonderful director. Um, uh, Sean Bean, of course, gives a wonderful villain turn. I think it's a great movie. I think the world is not enough is better. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I like. I think this is the best Brosnan is as the character. Um, I think he finds a dark uh, place, and, I, and I, I speak to this a little bit in the piece that I wrote. Um, he finds kind of a dark piece. Uh, a, excuse me, a dark side uh, to Bond that will will we uh, liked in Timothy Dalton, and will go on to celebrate quite a bit when Daniel Craig comes around. Um, he kills in cold blood in the movie. Uh, I love um, Sophie Marceau as his love interest. Well, the the sort of villain love interest. Um, you can joke about Denise Richards all you want, but I, I don't think I think she does what she's meant to do, yeah. and uh, I think she has a good sense of humor about the movie. And um, if you haven't, if you if you're a Bond fan and you haven't you haven't given that one a shot in a while, I would really go for it. Um, it's it's Desmond Llewellyn's last turn as Q. Um, unfortunately he passes away, uh, very tragically a couple months, I think before the movie came out or after the movie came out. Um, he has a wonderful goodbye that he gives, uh, to, to, to 007 there. And I really, I really think it's got strong action. It's got strong characterization. I think Judy Dench is good. She's the most kind of awake and aware as, uh, in the Brosnan bonds because she has the most to do. Um, uh, again, we talk about how great she is in the Daniel Craig era, era, era. and, um, she is certainly wonderful and nothing's going to beat, you know, Skyfall or anything like that or Casino Royale. But, um, as, as, as far as the Brosnan bonds go, I think she's wonderful in it as well. So, um, I feel pretty comfortable dying on that hill. I think the world is not enough is the best Brosnan bond. I like it. I like this take. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I like um, that it's, uh, that Michael Apted made it because... yeah. He's not necessarily known for making action movies, you know. Yeah, and I and I think it's a well-directed movie. I mean, I think the action yeah, scenes have a lot works. of energy. There's there's the the, um, the pipeline chase where they're Bond and and Dr. Like Christmas that. Jones are in the pipeline, and there's a lot of good energy to it. The, you know, the Bond one-liners are fun. I love Robbie Coltrane uh, returning as uh, Vladimir Zukovsky. Um, Is this the one and, where he bites uh, he it? Yeah, this is the he always only in two. He does oh, okay. Gold Knight, he's Golden Eye. Golden not one. enough. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um R.I.P. Uh, R.I.P. Yeah. R.I.P. Hagrid. R.I.P. Hagrid, R.I.P. Valentin Zukovsky. Uh <laughs> he had a great he had a great run. Um and uh I just I just really enjoy it. I'm a big Bond fan and I think the world is not enough is one of the better ones. What's your favorite Bond period? I don't know if we've ever had this conversation. If we have, I don't know if it was on record. My favorite Bond period period i think there's strong there's strong stuff in each one i mean i i go back to, to the brazen era a lot because era. that's the era the era, era era um that i fell in love with bond when i was a kid like okay. i had you know when because gold and i had come out and i remember the vhs tapes that i had been given i remember a a, a relative or an aunt or an uncle gave me um got me Goldeneye, thunderball goldfinger um and i think and no, because I would have bought the world is not enough on my own because I remember I saw that in theaters. Um, I can't exactly remember, but but I got little tastes of all the eras, eras. Era. And the only one I still just and, and and this is no disrespect, I just 
I don't have as much of a sense of humor about the Roger Moore era as a lot of people do. Era. Era. Um, I have friends who are a bit older than me that say, no, that was my bond and, and he's great. And I have nothing against Roger Moore. I think it's, 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 I think there's a couple movies in there that are really good. I think the spy who loved me is really good. Yeah. Um, um, I think live and let die is a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, but I think to me, it just, just the world is not enough is, is, and, and the bras and era in general, that's era. just my, because there's era there's, there's so much of just, you know, I was a kid during that time and, Bond is such a kid character. He's an adolescent character, you know, right. he appeals to 13-year-old boys. And so, you know, for as much as I love I mean Casino Royale was that that I was in college, I was a freshman in college and that movie came out and I remember being on the Daniel Craig side of things when everybody was like, "Oh, a blonde Bond is not going to work <laughs> and this is going to be terrible and blah blah blah." I was a Bond reader at that point. I've read a whole, I haven't read all the books, but I've read a bunch of the books. And I was like, no, Casino Royale is a great book. He's going to be really good. It's going to be gritty and dark. And the director of Goldeneye is doing it. Speaking of Goldeneye. Um, so I have a lot of appreciation for that time period. But uh, I, the Brosnan era, I mean, I just, I just, that's, right. that's my childhood. Yeah. So The World Is Not Enough is your favorite of all the Bonds? If you had to ask me right now, that's what I'm asking. Put on, Put on a Bond movie. Yeah. Which one? Which one are you gonna go for? I love Casino Royale. I love Vesper Lind. I love her in that role. But no, I think it's gonna be The World's Not Enough. I, I think that's the this. one that's. I love this. That's gonna be. That's gonna be the easiest one for me to watch. It's gonna be the one that's like it's it's gonna bridge the gap the best between the '90s period and the modern period. Um, yeah, I think that might. I think it might be my favorite one. This is why you should never skip a Rob show, guys. Don't skip a Rob show, okay? <laughs> Throwing out them hot takes. Yeah, I love it. World is not enough. All right, what have you watched, my friend? We've taken too much time. Well, let's see. Um, this will probably be a little old by the time this show comes out, but Erica and I took three days and finally got through Reminiscence. on hbo max um i will admit i kind of was looking forward to reminiscence because i was like hey that looks like a kind of movie that doesn't really get made anymore like mid-budget sci-fi i like hugh jackman i really like rebecca ferguson um there were some interesting visuals i thought that the trailer was fairly well done and i have no foreknowledge of writer director lisa joy because i've never watched westworld have you uh no i've seen the movie i've never watched the show yeah no i've seen the movie but yeah i'm not into the show and i know she's one of the creative forces behind that show um i know nothing about westworld so lisa joy is an unknown quantity to me uh you know it's not that reminiscence is bad except that it's a little bit bad um the problem is just that I found myself <laughs> wanting to watch other movies while I was watching it, uh, in part because it's, uh, for lack of a better word, reminiscent of other movies like Big Time Strange Days, got major Strange Days vibes. Okay, all right. A uh, little bit of Dark City, a little bit of Inception. Um, all movies I really like and didn't really like this movie uh, it has some cool ideas like this notion that you know everything flooded and so the streets are always like 
knee high in water anytime anybody walks around and the city has gone nocturnal because global warming has made it too hot during the day, but then they don't do anything with it. Like characters are out during the daytime for at least half the movie and nobody seems affected. Nobody comments on the temperature even. So they introduce that as a plot point as part of world building and then kind of do nothing with it. Um, and it definitely leans super hard into being this sort of sci-fi neo-noir, the way Dark City does and the way Strange Days does. Uh, a, by having Rebecca Ferguson play such a femme fatale type, but B, by having Hugh Jackman do this voiceover that is constant and is full of... It's really overwritten, and it wants to sound very profound but it, what he's saying is kind of nonsense uh i wish i had an example in front of me right now but it's like something about the pa it's all about the past and memory everything he says talking about the past and like ghosts don't haunt us we're the ghosts that haunt the past it's like well I, I don't know what that means <laughs> you're just you're just <laughs> saying words you can't just say words you know. <laughs> so I didn't get that exactly right, and maybe in the context of the movie it makes more sense, because somebody's listening to this and being like, well, you're mischaracterizing it, and that's unfair, and that's totally true. Um, movie didn't work for me, unfortunately. I appreciate that it is a sort of mid-budget original idea, original, you know, in air quotes a little bit. Um, but it just it gets to a point where... One character is searching for another character, which you know if you've seen the trailer, because Hugh Jackman yells, where is she? And I found myself not giving a shit. Like, I don't care why he's looking for her. I don't care if he finds her. Uh, I just didn't care. Patrick Bromley, F this movie. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so, so, and, and not to, not to just keep dumping on, uh, but I was, <laughs> so I've been, I've had this, this, this shoulder injury this sort of shoulder pain the last couple of days that's make it made it very hard to sleep and the other night i was i was awake at about 2 a.m and opened the laptop and i said well if i could find something to distract me from this this pain maybe i can doze off and i started reminiscence and i made it about through the studio logos and i <laughs> I, I was just like you know what i can't i can't do it so i watched i watched get shorty instead get shorty's good <laughs> Get Shorty's great. I was so I was so happy to rewatch Get Shorty. So I'm very sorry to reminiscence. I, I I'm sure you tried your best. I although I'm looking at a variety article right now that says Hugh Jackman's reminiscence crumbles with two million dollar debut, highlighting the struggle of movies aimed at older audiences. Um, Patrick, would you say reminiscence is aimed at an older audience? Well, it's certainly made for adults, despite its PG thirteen rating. There's nothing in it that's going to appeal to young people. Sure. Um, and Except again, huge act. there used right. There used to be lots of movies made like this. That's why it does. It brings me no pleasure to kind of be down on this movie because, in terms of what it is and what it's going for, I want it to succeed. Uh, I just wasn't crazy about it. But uh, we get fewer and fewer movies like Reminiscence these days, and so to watch them fail only, you know, proves the point that like. Well, everything's got to be Black Widow, I guess. Yeah, I'm sorry, Patrick. I'm, I'm looking through some notes here. I'm, I'm I want to I want to follow up on what you said, but yeah, go ahead. I, I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble remembering whose house. I can't. Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, 
We talked about this. It's, it was right here. It's I just I just had it. It's Ron's house. That's right. Yeah. Ron's house. Ron's house. Okay. Ron's house. Yeah. Um, besides reminiscence, I saw for the first time I've been slowly, and I do mean slowly, going through like Clint Eastwood's entire filmography, both as a director and as a star. Uh, and it's a lot of movies. (laughs) Um, so I finally got around to seeing Richard Jewell, which I know Adam Risky was a big fan of and just recently put it on his list of, uh, like top 10 do overs. He published a list that if he were to redo some of his top tens, here are the movies that would make the list now versus then. And Richard Jewell was a wonderful idea for a column. He, he explained that to me when he was out here and I'm, I'm a big fan of that. So Adam, keep, keep writing those buddy. Yeah. It's super fun. Um, Richard Jewell was one of the movies on the list. Um, I really liked it. I, I, I struggle, you know, cause I really, really like Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker and as a performer, but I struggle with some of his, what about, what about as a political commentator? Well, that's the problem. <laughs> it's like our <laughs> our politics are different. I'll just say that. And sometimes it bleeds into his filmography in a way that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And yes. I think had I seen Richard Jewell in 2019 during the Trump administration to see a movie that attacks both the FBI and journalism as being these like sort of corrupt forces uh i think it really would have sat wrong with me i think i would have had a real problem with it um i had less of an issue with it now i i'm very aware of it uh as i watch it and i'm like oh clint eastwood you are different from me uh and that's fine that's totally fine um because i found the movie very entertaining and very interesting i didn't know much about the richard jewell case and the performances are all really really good in particular paul walter hauser as the titular richard jewell i thought he was incredible uh and not a guy i've seen in a ton of stuff i remember him in i Tanya, mm-hmm. and i know he's in cruella because that was the first thing that adam told me because yeah. adam's a little bit obsessed with cruella I still have not seen it. Either have I. I kind of want to just not because I want to hold on to Adam's like, I, I just I just want to I want it to live as an Adam Risky movie. And I, I don't even want to think about it outside of his context. <laughs> so I may never watch it. I feel like I need to see it before we do our summer wrap up show, just so that sure, somebody else yeah. can engage in the discussion about Cruella. But it hasn't hit regular Disney Plus yet, I don't think. Uh, I don't think so either. I yeah. haven't looked, though. Uh, so maybe, maybe is it at a red box, maybe? Ooh, you, you know, I have not been uh, to the box recently. Shit. I know. It's been, a, it's been a bit. It's been a minute. I might have to, I might have to, I might have to, to hit the box. I got, I got a couple. See, we, we now have this bevy of new releases. Yeah. I've got, we've got, you know, Shang-Chi and Candyman and all these things coming out now. So now my, now my inbox is full again and i'm thinking to myself when am i going to get back to the red box i think i I think maybe you know what maybe next week we'll do a red boxing patrick how about that i'm excited about this i'm not seeing cruella at the box uh i am seeing however a movie that screams (laughs) screams out for a red boxing column what do we got little movie was starring bruce willis and megan fox called midnight in the switchgrass (laughs) 
And if that's not a red boxing title, I don't know what is. <laughs> Midnight in the Switchgrass. All right. Two FBI agents. Something uh, goes horribly wrong. Wait, wait. I am in. I've discovered oh, another Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Willis and Jamie King in Out of Death. All right. All right. So right now, lightning round. Which title grabs you more? I think yeah. Out of Death. Out of Death is... Because it's cause like, a, listen, like I a, would die, but I'm all out of death. That's almost like a Back to the Future kind of title. Yeah. It's like, it's like yeah. wait, it's like, wait, what? What's yeah. happening here? Out of Death. Okay. Out of all Death. All right, so, so Red Boxing, you, you see, this is another, uh, another little gift for those of you who don't skip Rob episodes. Next week, Red Boxing on either Out of Death or Midnight <laughs> in the Switchgrass or possibly both. Ooh. It depends on... We might go back to doing double features, folks. Nice. Um, Bruce Willis double. You can also watch the Nicolas Cage uh, pregnancy drama Inconceivable free on demand on the Red Boxing website. Holding off the urge to do a Wallace Shawn impression. (laughs) Holding off the urge to do a Wallace Shawn impression. It's not great, and Nicolas Cage uh, is overqualified for the role that he's asked to play. You know what Nicolas Cage movie is great, Patrick? Uh, which one? It's it's Pig. Pig is great. Everybody see Pig yet? Pig is Go my favorite movie of the year so far. Mine too. But that's because I haven't seen Midnight in the Switchgrass. <laughs> or Out of Death. <laughs> I want to just real quick to just jump back to Richard Jewell real quick. I also really, really enjoyed Richard Jewell, and I totally understand what you we mean when it comes to the politics stuff. And I just want to throw out there that Richard Jewell is um, a few, I think probably – a year ago or 10 years ago now. I don't even remember because time has no meaning. Uh, we coined the phrase stepdad movie. Uh, and I, I definitely watched Richard Jewell with my stepdad. Oh, sure. Because uh, it is a stepdad movie. Um, and it was it was really fun to watch it with him and to hear hear him sort of say as we're watching the movie kind of unironically, uh, oh, yeah, man, they railroaded this guy. You know, yeah, like, yeah, just yeah. like very much a very much a, a Clint, you know, a Clint uh, 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 sort of uh, theme uh, yeah. or a, you know, kind of thing. But no, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed Richard Jewell very much as well. I, I uh, uh, Sam Rockwell, man. He's good. Rockwell brings it. He always does. He's and good. Everybody, Hamm, Kathy Bates is great. Olivia Wilde, yeah. overqualified for her 100% problematic role. <laughs> uh, yeah. I forgot about it until I was watching it, and then I was like, oh, right, you made up the whole thing about the journalist who fucks people for information, because that's what we do, right? It's not when great. When we want to demonize uh, journalists. It's not great. John Hamm is handsome, though, so what are you going to do? He is. Uh, yeah, and we can talk about this. I mean, I, you know, Clint Eastwood is a guy like you just we and, you know, you and I are very, I imagine, very closely aligned in terms of politics. But there's also just this like there's an extent to which you understand the sort of uh, Clint Eastwood like, well, the media or well, the government or well, this or well, that, yeah. and, you know, that sort of championing of individualism and American exceptionalism and blah 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 and i understand all that but there is an extent to which it just grow up and have some empathy you know right right, <laughs> just, right like not everybody's life is like this not everybody has the opportunities you know we as white men have like just 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 a little just take one little seminar on somebody who's different than you and um and i don't think that i mean there's an extent to which something like american american sniper i think i I get distracted by the politics of it. Um, 
But Richard Jewell didn't do that to me. I, I, I was able to sympathize. Yeah, I was going to say I need to rewatch American Sniper because I think I was distracted by the politics of it at the time that I saw yeah, it I, and was I very was possibly too. unfair to it as a result. So I, I, I need to see it again and reassess. I remember uh, yeah, Bradley I, Cooper being very good. I watched that and Boyhood on the same night. That's a hell of a double feature. That was a catch up. That was a catch up night for me. I remember yeah. very specifically sitting and watching both those movies. Um, I don't remember really much of Boyhood. Have you gone back and rewatched Boyhood? Patrick? No, I have not. Nobody has. <laughs> Nobody has. If you say you have, you're lying. Nobody has gone back and rewatched. No, Boyhood. I saw it theatrically. I don't even own it. And I own a lot of fucking movies. <laughs> you own, you own, you own, I, yeah, I've, 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 I've been in your basement. Buddy. I was trying to think of, of like, a, you know, a movie I shouldn't own, but do, uh, I own the Nicolas Cage Left Behind. Ooh. Because I found it at the dollar store. For a dollar? Yeah, for a dollar. Wow. I'd pay a dollar for that. Right? 100%. Are you are you gonna go hundred percent Nicolas Cage completist? Uh I mean I'm most of the way there. You're already yeah. I don't own Inconceivable, but I can stream it for free on the Redbox website. I, and and I want to throw it out there to you folks. The Redbox website for streaming, solid. First solid, place I go. Solid. That's my Netflix. <laughs> first, first place I go. I got the app on my phone. <laughs> Streams in 4K. It's when lovely. I can't sleep, throw on when a little Inconceivable. After I watch Get Shorty, <laughs> throw on Inconceivable or the newly released Midnight in the Switchgrass. Oh, uh, hey now. Also starring... Also starring Machine Gun Kelly. Oh, wow. Megan Fox's boyfriend, person. right? Uh, and Sistine Stallone? Nope. Are we any relation? I'm assuming. If you I do watch it, so. I want you to sit there with a stopwatch and clock how much time Bruno is on screen in that movie. Because I'm going to guess it's not a lot. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be, let's see here. I'll give it, I'll give it. 10 minutes i'll do uh, we'll i would do have like said eight. 12 so i if, anthony, if we're doing well, over under i'll say 12 yeah all right you take the over yeah you take the over i'll take the under it's the anthony hopkins rule right silence of lambs where he's only on screen for something like 11 <laughs> right. and a half minutes right um that's bruce willis's like that's in his rider for like these weird action movies he shoots in like estonia or whatever where he's like get yeah, million dollars a day and no more than 11 and a half minutes of screen time <laughs> that's 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 what i'm gonna give you he makes the same impact as Hannibal Lecter in every one of them. <laughs> he does. One day, one day, Patrick, he's going to come back. And he's going to come back in a big way. Yep. I hope so. Or he won't. Hudson Hawk 2, baby. Oh, I'm sorry. Are we... Did you Did you see that? What, what was it? I think that was a little bit of excitement. Oh, what do I do with it? Go back and check out our... Hudson Hawk episode, which we have now plugged again on every episode I've been on since the Hudson Hawk episode. We can't help I it hope, if we caught the excitement. I hope this goes on for the rest of the time. <laughs> it probably will. <laughs> uh, the only other movie I'll talk about, I, there's a bunch that I've seen, but the only other one that I really want to talk about is Child's Play 3 because... <laughs> Like you do. <laughs> it's worth mentioning that I rewatched Child's Play 3 only because I rewatched Child's Play 2. And okay. I think I've seen that one the most. And like, I could not on a piece of paper 
demonstrate to you that Child's Play 2 is a good movie. Like, there's nothing that's empirically good about it. I can't point to, like, the performances are solid. or I mean, it's like a 75-minute movie. The last sequence in the Toy Factory is actually really good. The rest of it is, like, just okay. And yet I love it. Like, I love it. Sure. I could watch it any time. So... I don't I don't know what the distinction is there, like the difference between what's good and what I love. But Child's Play 2 is a good representation of like, might not be good, love it anyway. Child's Play It's no 3, midnight in the switchgrass. Well, so saying. few movies are. More movies need to incorporate switchgrass, I think, is and part of the issue. Telling. And MGK. Um, yes. Uh, he's, in, uh, he's in the new Jackass movie, too. Oh, well, that feels about right. I think he gets, whoa. I think he gets like, uh, punched off a bike or something. I feel like I saw him in the trailer. Remember in the Suicide Squad when Pete Davidson's face explodes? <laughs> I do remember that. Spoilers like that for the Suicide Squad, everyone. It's in the first, like, two minutes, guys. Yes, it oh. is. It is. Um, anyway. Child's, Child's Play 3 is the only one in the series that I don't like. This I is like... the Military Academy one, right? Yeah, and I just, I okay. can't get on board with it i don't know what it is it's like i don't like the setting very much i don't like that we have a different kid playing andy justin whalen has replaced alex vincent chucky is a little one-liner machine the kills are very boring and that's fine because child's play isn't a franchise known for inventive kills it's not friday the 13th or nightmare on elm street um but it's like he switches out blanks for live rounds and a kid gets shot. It's not the most cinematic of like when you're watching a movie about a killer puppet, it's a little bit uh, of a letdown uh, in terms of designing kills. Um, The characters are mostly unpleasant. I don't know. I just, I cannot dig on child's play three and I wish I could because I'm so close to liking every movie in that franchise. Cause I like every other thing, every single other one. And I've had people tell me child's play three is their favorite in the series, but I can't get there. So I, I've probably seen of the child's play movies. I've, I've seen, I've seen them all. Okay. I, I have definitely, I've definitely not seen child's play three more than once. I've definitely, that was definitely probably a scary movie month. Like I'm going to sit and watch three of these cause I've never seen them. Yeah. Um, I, I, the one thing I will say, and and you mentioned before, sort of Chucky being kind of a one-liner machine in that movie. Um, and while I, I can't really speak to the movie because I don't really remember too much about it, I, I do want to ask you a question as a fan of both these series, um, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and the Child's Prey franchise. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street also very famous for Freddy becoming more of a joke as the series goes on. Yeah. Uh, or at least there's a peak in the middle of the series where he becomes very sort of one-linery and comedic and yeah. things like that. Um, how would you? How do you think that plays in the series as opposed to Child's Play? Child's Play, which leans into the comedy. Like by the time you get to like Bride of Chucky and it's like a farce. Like where? Like how do you respond to the comedy in those two? Do you find one more inappropriate than the other? Or do you find? Like you said, you said it bothers you in Child's Play 3 that Chucky is kind of too funny. Well, I mean, he's not funny. Or, well, I <laughs> you know what I mean, trying to be. When it then, character. one movie later, pivots to comedy, basically, yes. in Bride of Chucky, I don't have a problem with that. Because okay. um, I think those next two movies, Bride and Seed of Chucky, are a lot of fun, and they're definitely very sort of campy, dark comedies. 
Um, I'm a little less enthused with it when it comes to Freddy Krueger, just because he was originally so scary, but it became such a part of the fabric of that character that I can't divorce myself from Freddy and the one-liners. I mean, I can when I rewatch the original film and it's like, see how much scarier is when he's quiet. Um, but I grew up on wisecracking Freddy. So Mm -hmm. it's one in the same. Whereas if I were to watch child's play one, two and three, three would stand out as responding to a trend. Three feels like they're chasing what Freddie was doing. Um, not that Chucky didn't crack wise as a sarcastic little bastard of a puppet, but there's something very scripted about his one-liners in three that feels different than the first two movies. Um, and because it's just the one movie, I guess it doesn't totally bother me, and I can kind of ignore Child's Play 3 overall. I'm really excited for the Chucky TV show, by the way. Sure, yeah. No, I, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about it because the Chucky franchise is not – the Chucky franchise to me, and, and, and again, and I should say Child's Play franchise or whatever, um, it, it very almost very clearly kind of bisected, right? Because there's Child's Play 1, 2, and 3, and then there's Bride, Seed, and what's the last one? Curse and then Cult. Curse and then Colt. I never. I don't think I got to see Colt yet. Colt is good. Colt is good. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, Fiona Dorif, right? Yeah. Yes, very much so. Fiona Dorif. Uh, we 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 stand. Um, <laughs> very very clearly, sort of in a way that the other movies aren't. You know, very split in half. You know, Child's Play, Child's Play one, two, and three, kind of a more sort of straightforward horror, yes. straightforward trends, yeah. much in the same way, and then. Very, you know, Don Mancini really leans into the comedy. I love Bride of Chucky. I love, like, I really like Seed of Chucky too. Like, I, I think those are much more, as, as, you know, I'm not as much of a horror purist as you are, certainly, not as much of a horror completist as you are. I really enjoy the mixing of the genres and the way that he sort of pivoted, um, and I can only assume, not knowing too much of the context, you know, pivoted to the 90s, pivoted to the late 90s, pivoted to the Scream era, era, of era. kind of self, self-referential horror, maybe. Um, and this is just, I mean, I haven't not seen those movies in a while, but, um, as opposed to something like, you know, Halloween or, or Friday the 13th or, or Nightmare on Elm Street where the, 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 the sequels play with reinvention or reboot or, you know, things like that to kind of try to stay relevant, but don't necessarily have tonal shifts in the same way. Right. And, you know, I think, yeah, I think if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So I think, I think, I mean, aside from the fact that it's just, as far as I know, it's Mancini writes all of them. Right? I, it he, may be the only franchise that that is the case. So, so that to me is like, I think just incredibly interesting, incredibly. Yeah. Well, maybe with the except maybe the Hatchet, right? Hatchet oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But that's all, of course, doesn't have the cultural cachet of, of right. Child's Play. But, but, but also, but very, you know, I think very interesting. I'd, I'd maybe, you know, maybe the Scary Movie Month. Speaking of which, maybe I'll kind of go back and and make my way through those because I really enjoy the original. I really enjoy Bride and Seed. Um, but the other ones, I, I, I've maybe I've seen once. I haven't really gone back and rewatched too many of them. So that would be interesting. And I think Cult makes Curse a little bit better. Like Curse pivots again to this sort of weird gothic haunted house movie before mm-hmm. becoming a more traditional Chucky movie. Um, and curse, I think the stuff they do in curse makes, or I'm sorry, the stuff they do in cult makes curse even more interesting. So those, those last two are sort of of a piece 
in the way that Bride and Seed are of a piece. So it's a franchise that really keeps reinventing itself. Uh, but except for three, I don't think there's a bad entry. Where's the uh, where does the remake, the Aubrey Plaza remake, fall in your it's, estimation? It's fine. I, I thought it was okay. Like I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't in love with it. I kind of forget that it exists, to be honest. Uh, so it does nothing nope. to take away my affection for the original franchise, but it's not a movie that's going to be put in the rotation for me. No, I don't, I don't think so either. I remember that was a Redbox movie for me. I think that was a catch up, catch up with the year movie, yeah. Redboxing in December kind of thing. And yeah, no, that one wasn't for me. So yeah, uh, I guess we should talk about Dogma now that we're almost fifty minutes into the show. Look, the 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 I understand, folks. You know, you're waiting for the main event. You, you know, some people get frustrated. Hey, how come you talk about these other movies? But there's a big question we have to answer. <laughs> And that is this. <laughs> Whose house? Uh, well, I have two words for you, and it's runs something. Martin. Yes. Martin. Let's talk about Dogma. Let's talk about Dogma, the fourth film from writer-director Kevin Smith from the year 1999. Uh, his first movie shot in widescreen. Uh, his biggest budget to date at around $10 million. Do I have that right? I think that's about right, yeah. Um, huge cast reuniting Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, fresh off their Oscar win for Goodwill Hunting. It's really the only time they've reunited up until yeah. this fall's uh, The Last Duel. What's it called? I haven't watched yes, the trailer yet. that's right. But yeah, I'm excited oh for a new Ridley Scott yeah, movie. sure. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, yeah. We have two uh, yeah, they win, they win the Oscar for Goodwill Hunting while shooting this movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. They leave the set to accept the Oscar. Nice. And come back <laughs> uh, pr- probably considerably more egotistical. <laughs> 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 I would imagine if I was those two. Anyway, good. Um, yeah, it's a huge ensemble piece. I think some members of the ensemble fare better than others, and we can talk about that, I guess. But I know that you are a big Kevin Smith fan. You and I, years ago, did a podcast on Chasing Amy. We kind of talked a lot about our where we're at with Kevin Smith, so we don't necessarily need to review all of that stuff. Um but I guess where does does Dogma sit with you in terms of his filmography? Dogma, if and and I don't want to, we don't have to get into this right away. Oh, but if there was a if there was a different female lead, ah, say Janine Garofalo, I, say for example the lovely Miss Janine Garofalo, yeah, uh, it might be his best movie. Interesting. Now, okay. Of that, well, I should say this of the first. Well, uh, see, I don't know. Mm. All right, let me think about that. Before, all right, I'm going to take back that hot take. It might be his best movie, okay? If it, if, if, were there a few tweaks? We have talked about Dogma quite a bit. In fact, the reason why I, I mentioned this as a show idea was because we keep coming back to it in conversation. You can go back and listen to Rob episodes. If you're one of those people who <laughs> listens to Rob episodes, uh, you can hear us sort of both kind of take shots at dogma but then also like kind of express weird admiration for dogma kind of like oh yeah dogma that's an interesting movie um so a couple weeks ago or last week or whenever because time doesn't matter 
um, I texted you. I said, I think our next show has to be Dogma. And you're like, all right, let's, you know, let's do Dogma. Um, I have, and, and again, I don't want to get too much into the history because we've talked about Kevin Smith a lot. Dogma might be the reason I'm talking to you right now. Oh. Um, Dogma, and we talked about a little bit about this before we uh, went on. Uh, yeah, that's right. We talk <laughs> because we're friends. Um, I have. I was about 10 minutes into Dogma, maybe not even, maybe like five minutes into Dogma on this rewatch when I realized that I knew the whole movie by heart. And I went back and I turned on the commentary after I was done, right before we started recording. I was watching a little bit of the commentary. And I realized I have the commentary track almost by heart. Um, I'm looking right now at a copy of the Dogma screenplay, a physical copy of the Dogma screenplay um, that my mom bought for me when I was younger because she knew that I loved movies and I loved writing and I loved Kevin Smith. Um, a, a dog-eared copy of Dogma that I've got favorite lines highlighted. Interesting. Um, and, and I've got alternate alternate line readings, uh, you know, lines that were cut uh, highlighted. Um, I've got you know, little differences between I've got little notes that are, you know, differences between the, the, the movie proper and the screenplay um, as 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 in this uh, third draft that I have here that's dated May 15th, 1996. Um, I really I mean, there's so much about this movie that was a lot of early like kind of an early film school for me. It really got me interested. Kevin Smith got me interested in screenplays because I loved the music of his language and his writing. Um, this movie created the way I'll say it is, is, is this I'm a lapsed Catholic. Uh, I grew up Roman Catholic um, East coaster, you know uh, uh, the quick stop is about an hour and a half drive from where I'm sitting right now. Um, Red Bank, New Jersey, where Kevin Smith makes sort of his headquarters is about an hour and a half drive just South of New York city. Um, both places I've visited by the way, as sort of pilgrimages to hmm. my early life idol. Um, so much of the mechanics of the intricacies of the minutias of the details of filmmaking, I channeled my learning through Kevin Smith movies and dogma is his most to me at that time. And maybe still to this day with the exception of maybe something like red state, his most ambitious movie. Um, and we can talk about whether or not it was successful because it's very much varying degrees of success, but this was a movie I really latched on to early on. Um, and if my friend Drew was listening, uh, Drew, I'll give you props here. When we were seventh graders on the, in the courtyard outside our school, when you were telling us about Dogma and how Dogma is an awesome movie and that we should all rent it and watch it, and we eventually did. Um, shout out to my friend Drew. Um, he skips the rap shows. He skips the rap shows. He always does. Um, we both tackled this movie together, and, and what I love about this movie is it takes Catholicism, which is a thing I grew up in and frankly kind of bored by and turns it into like Lord of the Rings where there's like factions and rules and, 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 and mythology. And I love Kevin Smith's approach to the movie, which was not criticizing faith, but criticizing the ways in which religion can corrupt faith, which mm -hmm. as an arrogant, an arrogant little, kid raised catholic i was so excited i had a little i had like a ricky gervais period between <laughs> ages of like, like 
13 and 16 where like I just couldn't wait to tell people about the contradictions in organized Western religions. Um, <laughs> and so dogma really spoke to me at that time as a, just a completely obnoxious middle school, high school kid. Um, and uh, despite all its failings and its failings are significant, <laughs> um, I, I have a really soft spot in my heart for dogma. I really do. I still do. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I've I've liked it since I saw it opening night in 1999. Uh, I continue to like it to this day in varying degrees. Um, I would I would maintain that it remains Kevin Smith's most ambitious movie, and that's kind of what's most interesting about it and most endearing to me about it is that he's really swinging for the fences. Um, He's telling a big story with a big cast. He's got special effects. He's got different locations. He's got a very dense script that he's written that's working with some big ideas and tons of words and tons of language. Um, and again, I'm looking at it right – I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm looking yeah. at the script itself right now. It's about 133 pages. Yeah. So just to give you a – and I think some people handle the dialogue better than others. And again, that's maybe part of the problem with dogma is there's like a few too many Jeremy London's in it. Like, um, sure. he doesn't handle the, what you referred to as the music, the, the, the Kevin, the music of Kevin Smith dialogue, you know, there's a way to do it. And I never thought he handled it particularly well in Mallrats, and I think there's a bunch of people that don't handle it as well in Dogma. Um, 100%. I mean, we could do an entire episode that just talks about Dogma in the context of 1999. And, you know, 99 was such a magical year for movies. I know there's a book called, like, Best Movie Year Ever. I mm -hmm. found that book frustrating. Um, I appreciated the walk down memory lane, but I didn't find any insight and that bothered me um it was just like and then this movie remember that movie uh yeah i do i remember these movies <laughs> what about them <laughs> you know um but i think you know kevin smith making his most ambitious movie really fits in to the framework of 1999 in terms of what was happening culturally and all of these filmmakers many of them on the younger side you know with a few movies behind them taking these gigantic swings, whether it's Fight Club or Magnolia or being John Malkovich or Dogma, you know, that even somebody with the pedigree of Kevin Smith, and he's the first to make fun of his pedigree and say he doesn't know how to make movies and he's just this normal guy from New Jersey and blah, 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 that even a Kevin Smith is taking a gigantic swing with dogma. And that's part of what makes 99 so special. And it's part of what makes this movie so special. Um, I mean, I don't even know necessarily how to frame the discussion. I did not grow up Catholic. I did not grow up with religion. I was told as maybe a teenager that my father had wanted to raise us very religious and my mom expressed some reservations about that. And so he decided it was an all or nothing situation. Mm, and okay. so he said, well, then nothing. Now, I have not had that confirmed. Uh, so that's just something I was told at one point in my life. But so I was not raised with any religion. But what, what I think is so 
one of the things that I think works so well about dogma is even without religion, now I don't grapple with the questions of faith as much as somebody perhaps who was raised with religion that this movie grapples with. But I love what you said about how he turns it into Lord of the Rings, because I don't necessarily need to be familiar with the stories of the Bible or Catholic dogma, as it were, um, to understand everything that's happening in this movie, because he does turn it into mythology. And yeah. uh, it really, really works on that level. He turns it into a turns into Star Wars, like with right. rules and right. things like that and all these. I mean, I just loved, and especially, as I said, kind of as like that lapsed Catholic, like I loved like the Metatron, like, you know, like, you know, oh, he's the voice of God and he's and all these like Bible deep cuts, you know, like that only a Catholic school kid would really know. Um, and I want to, I just want to real quick, just jump back to what you said about, about 99. And for, if anybody hasn't, anybody who's even a peripheral fan of Kevin Smith, if, if you've not listened to any of his early commentary tracks, um, I was, I was talking earlier about how I fell asleep, I used to fall asleep to his commentary tracks, whether it was small rats chasing Amy clerks, you know, any of those early ones, the dogma one is so fascinating because you're capturing this moment in time and it's, it's Smith, it's Jay Muse, it's uh, Jason Lee, it's uh, Affleck and all the producers. And it's like Smith is carrying himself, you know, he's like maybe just turned 30 as a very not pretentious, but like he speaks in that way of a young man looking to marcus territory and mm -hmm. a little bit of ego and a little bit of hey i've got a disc in the criterion collection he's not the kevin smith we know now who's just constantly just like yeah i'll do whatever i don't care blah, blah, blah. you know like whatever he is very much a young man being like look i made this very artistic picture and i'm really frustrated that it wasn't nominated for any academy awards he talks about dogma and how it didn't get nominated for oscars and his front and not from an egotistical way he's not talking about himself he's talking about the cast and affleck and blah 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 but clearly this is that tail end of that indie boom where he has this critical and cultural clout as a filmmaker. You know, Lee has just won a he won an independent spirit award for Chasing Amy, right? Chasing Amy's won. Jason Lee. Chasing Amy's Jason Lee. And he so he's got this celebrated actor here. He's got Ben fucking Affleck <laughs> sitting next to him, who is in while they're shooting, while they're recording the commentary track, he's in the middle of making Armageddon. So Smith is sitting there mocking him mercilessly for being in the Michael Bay asteroid picture and, and not doing serious work like dogma. You know, like it's just, it's such an interesting moment in time. Um, and, 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 you know, to speak to kind of what you said about that, like it is such, it's a, it's a, it's a movie that he could only have made it this time. Like he talks about if, if you're not a Kevin Smith completist, like I am, he talks about, Dogma being one of the first scripts he ever wrote. Long before he wrote Clerks, he wrote Dogma. He wrote a version of Dogma. And he knew that he wouldn't have the budget to make it, so he makes Clerks, then he makes Mallrats, and then, you know, Mallrats is a hit, or excuse me, Mallrats is a flop, so he kind of has his tail between his legs, so he makes Chasing Amy because it's a smaller budget. But then once Chasing Amy is a critical success, he's like, all right, now I've got the clout where I can get enough of a budget to make Dogma. And he attracts Damon and Affleck, obviously. He attracts... Um, uh, Chris Rock, who's a huge cultural touchstone at the time, he attracts Alan Rickman, who I think is just wonderful in the movie, and 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 he, you know, 
and we have to answer the Fiorentino question here. He he attracts Linda Fiorentino, uh, who is I, I you know kind of an, an it girl at the time. I don't know if I'm if I'm wrong in that, but you know the, she's coming off of you know Men in Black and Jade and The Last Seduction and all that, and obviously you know she goes all the way back to to um, Vision Quest and all that, and, and she's an established actress. Um, I think she's grotesquely miscast in this movie. I think yeah. she's awful. Yeah. She's awful in this movie. She she brings, she almost brings the movie down. Um, and and it's nothing against her. I think she's wonderful. in, in you know, last seduction. I finally saw last seduction last year. I get Linda Fiorentino now. I understand her spot, her her the, you know the pocket that she needs to be in. And it is not dogma. She is just grotesquely miscast in this movie. Um, but this really is, as you said, it represents Kevin Smith's biggest swing, and it's a swing he never takes again, with the exception of something like Red State, which I, which comes much later, and and when he is in that defiant anti Hollywood sort of Steven Soderbergh period, where he's like, "Fuck this, you, you know, you're terrible," blah blah blah. He has that sort of crisis of confidence where he's not sure what he who he is. Um, and, you know, now he's making Clerks 3, and, and I, you know, look, I love Clerks 2. I've written about Clerks 2 and my love for Clerks 2. Um, maybe one of the, the, the one most wonderful moments of my writing career was when Kevin Smith retweeted my article about Clerks 2 and said it was really good and he liked it, so that was really nice for me. Um, That's awesome. I love, Clerk, I love Clerks 2. Um, but Dogma is, I think, as you said, his, his most ambitious. It's his most dense. It's, 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 that, it's that band's first album factor where the band spent 10 years writing that first album in their basement, in their garage. <laughs> and it's, there's, it's the most dense songs. It's the most like heart. It's the one that they wrote when their first girlfriend broke up with them or blah, blah, blah. Dogma is full of stuff like that. Dogma is a movie that Kevin Smith had clearly been thinking about as a Catholic school student in New Jersey for his entire life up until that point. And so, and I think it shows. And I think that, you know, we can get into the criticisms that both of us, both, both of us have made in the past with the movie where it is literally a screenplay that can't get over being on the page and never really comes together visually and all those things we can say, but we really can't, I don't think, fault it for its density and its ideas. Cause I do think it's full of ideas. It is absolutely full of ideas. Um, part of my frustration comes with the fact that he doesn't, he never figures out how to express those ideas or explore them dramatically. Right. So he has a bunch of placeholder characters explaining shit to each other. And I think that's how this movie kind of first came up as we were talking about Ex Machina and how right. Ex Machina could have been dogma. And I think you said it's like a screenplay that never figured out how to be a movie. Um, and that was this was always my touchstone for a movie in which characters just explain shit to each other uh, rather than ideas presented visual, you know, show don't tell. Uh, it's a lot of Chris Rock, like, you mean to tell me, and Linda right. Fiorentino saying, now wait, let me make sure I get this, and Salma Hayek saying, let me tell, let me tell let you me about explain, what these yeah. things are. Um, <laughs> so he's got all these ideas, and he turns it into this Lord of the Rings mythology, and that is all to be applauded, uh, but at the same time, it's just, pe it, there's so many ideas that the movie can't ever 
become a movie because everybody is always having to catch each other up and explain who they are and what their role is and what function they serve within Catholicism, according to Kevin Smith. Um, and no one is really a character with a few exceptions. You know, Rufus is never a character. Rufus is a mouthpiece for some ideas that Kevin Smith has about the apostles, about the role of black people in Catholicism. Um, I think a few people manage to become fully fleshed out characters. I think, oddly enough, one of them is Alanis Morissette. <laughs> who I watch at the end of this movie and wish to God she had made more movies because she's so delightful and expressive. Wonderful. And has movie. great timing. Uh, and and if you've never seen Dogma, we're talking about maybe a minute and a half of screen time. Of silent screen time. <laughs> <laughs> she does not speak. It's a real um, Willy's Wonderland situation out here, folks. <laughs> goodness. Oh, my goodness. I, I do want to mention just real quick, just not to interrupt you, but the one, the one dramatic, the actual, I was watching it this time, the one real dra actual dramatic arc in the film, like the actual sort of the way we understand drama to take place is one of those awful screenwriting cheats where as soon as Linda Fiorentino asks questions, some character goes, uh, we're not going to talk about that right now. We'll, we'll do that later. <laughs> right. And it's all, of course, about the reveal of her being the last scion, right? The great, 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 great grandniece of Jesus Christ. Um, he does these narrative cheats because anytime, as you say, drama is about to break out, well, we need to explain something about the nature of hell and right. the virgin right. birth and all these things. So we can't get into that. So, you know, you've got great actors like Alan Rickman being like, uh, let's not talk about that right now. Let's go over here where this is happening, you know? So the only real, with the exception of maybe like Bartleby's sort of arc as, you know, we sort of see him be corrupted a little bit. And I, 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 I do think Affleck is good in this movie. I, I, I just think this is like chasing Amy dogma. I think are sort of peak Affleck as a Kevin Smith mouthpiece, you know, Affleck gives it, the performance it, of the film. In as much as like you've got like De Niro as a Scorsese guy, like it's like kind of like that kind of dynamic where he's he's absolutely like he is he is locked in, and he says as much in the commentary. He says like you know this is the performance uh, up at that point in his career is like this is the performance I'm most proud of. This is the this is the script that I thought would launch me as an actor. You know like I, I always wanted to do this. I wanted to do this movie for years because of course before you know while they're making Chasing Amy, he's sleeping on Kevin Smith's couch. You know he's nobody. Um, but he had, of course, read Dogma and all the drafts, I assume. Um, and he does, as you say, I think he does deliver the, you know, with the exception of Alanis Morissette, delivers well, the of performance course. of the movie. Yeah. yeah. And he's the, he's the only other character that has a real arc, you know, whose character right. actually sort of changes over the course of the film in a dramatic way. Every time Linda Fiorentino tries to change, somebody goes, no, 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 stop. You know, let's go over here where Jay and Silent Bob are doing this. Well, you know? and her and big dramatic well scene, you know, unfortunately... Affleck's turn happens through performance. I mean, it's through writing, but it's through performance that we really buy his turn. Fiorentino's change of heart happens in a scene that's the worst scene in the movie where she's splashing around in a lake, screaming at the sky. And it's like, it's so poorly written. It's so poorly acted. Uh, and as you said, like she's only allowed to exist from scene to scene rather than build an actual dramatic arc. 
So when we get to that moment, it's like, well, we haven't really built up to this. We haven't really earned this moment. It's just that this is the next thing that needs to happen. Whereas right. I feel like Affleck's transformation is a lot more organic. Yeah, she has no real interiority. Like she's she's react she's a series of reactions right. to, you know, and, and I was sort of clocking it as the movie went on. Like, you know, she's introduced there in the beginning. We see the Bartleby and Loki airport scene, and then it's like, okay, minute X, Jay and Silent Bob are introduced. Okay, minute X, the Metatron is introduced. Minute X, Chris Rock comes in. Then, in, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, Salma Hayek is introduced. Like, and then there's Jason Lee, and like every time somebody comes in, they block her from being a character you know <laughs> and she just goes wait a minute as you said you know right. somebody explain to me what's going you mean on to here. tell me <sighs> so she doesn't get to have any feelings about and, you know and if you look at the sort of traditional hero's journey you know she's the she's the hero you know she's the the last scion she's the, the she's the luke skywalker she's the one who's supposed to go on this journey into the special world and grow and change and all those things and she's just never allowed to do it because you know we got to have Azrael explain uh for about you know, 1500 words, you know, the nature of evil. And it's like, and that's great. And this is very much a young man's screenplay. This is Kevin Smith taking the thing he started when he was 17, you know, probably. And around that time, if I had my Kevin Smith mythology, correct. And adding to it, deleting it, you know, we, I can't get rid of that speech. Cause I wrote that speech years ago and that speech is great. I, and I know what that's like. I've written stuff before I've written, you know, things where I go, well, that piece is wonderful. I'm going to keep that. But what if I, you know, well, I can change this around and something grows and evolves over the course of its life and dogma. As I said before, it's that first, it's that band's first album before they go into the studio and make their second album with a producer <laughs> who sands down all their rough edges. Yeah. and just like, yeah, no, it's this, you know, um, I, but 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 there is again there is still something and maybe it is just my uh, you know we talked a lot about adolescence and memory when i was talking about pierce brosnan you know like there's something so comforting about watching that first any of those first run kevin smith movies any of that first first run of the viewers universe like especially dogma chasing amy clerks for me you know it's just so comforting and it's just one of those things where i hear that i hear you know I, I used to fall asleep to this commentary track you know i used to fall asleep to this movie i um but narratively dramatically as as someone who's a little bit older now and 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 can can contextualize my my affection and my nostalgia for these movies i mean the movie is is a, is a mess <laughs> it's such a mess <laughs> like like i mean even just even just the construction even the way you know, coverage is put together, you know, when you look at the way and, and this is something that that Kevin Smith talks about a little bit in the commentary, the fact that so so for anybody doesn't know, Lynn Fiorentino and Kevin Smith did not get along. He has nothing but very, very not nice things to say about her in the in the commentary track and in the press around this movie. He talks about how she wouldn't talk to him for several periods of, of the shooting, which made her very hard to direct. And her explanation for that was that well she was the only person that had to be on set every day she's the only person who's in every scene and meanwhile you know chris rock is flying off to shoot uh you know lethal weapon four and you know affleck and damon are only there for a little bit they go off to go to the oscars and such and such jason lee goes off to do something else and she was sort of growing tired of that and well, I, I certainly understand that, and that's you know I, I can I can understand her 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 point of view and everything like that. Um, you also see that in in the way the movie is physically constructed, the fact that many shots are, you know, these sort of static 
uh, uh, you know, one shots, just one actor talking, and then we cut to someone else's coverage, and we cut to someone else's coverage. And the way it cuts together is often very herky-jerky. It feels as though Kevin Smith wasn't comfortable not being able to just put the camera down like he does in Chasing Amy or Clerks or whoever and just let the actors act in a scene. It's the thing that Kevin Smith always got shit for, right? He wasn't a visual right, director. Right. He just puts he just puts the camera down and lets people, you know, just act in the scene. And we get some of that, like with Affleck and Damon on the escalator in the airport and all that. And there are moments in the movie where that's the case. But so much of the rest of the movie is constructed in this way where, like, if you just count the cuts and you try to find the rhythm in a scene, you can tell that they're shot by different with different days, different people. You know, Chris Rock's probably talking to a PA, you know, during his coverage because such and such wasn't there. And you can feel the way the movie is put together and dramatically re-edited um, in, in a lot of ways. And, and the one thing I did want to get to was the way that speaking of this movie not being visual, he cuts around almost all the action yes. in the script. Yes. He cuts around the boardroom massacre. It's it's a disaster. Like the not even cutting around it the way that he does cut when there is action. Even something exactly. as simple as the stabbing of Matt Damon and him falling down. It's like he found the worst way to frame it yeah. and cut it. And it happens again and again. And I was watching it today and I was like, oh, Dave Klein, you're really out of your depth here. You know, that's yeah. nice that Kevin Smith wants to hire you, but you're really out of your depth. And then I watched the end credits and it's not Dave Klein. It's uh, it was shot by a guy named Robert Yauman. And I was very Shocked. surprised to see that yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I thought yeah. for sure this was Dave Klein do it, trying to do something way too big um, and letting it get the better of him because it is a poorly constructed movie. And, and, and again, just looking at the script like that I have in front of me, and I, I, re, I reread it the other night. Um, actually, reread it before I watched the movie again. Um, as we said, you know, the, the boardroom massacre, the fight in the strip club. Like, you see um, right, right. Uh, uh, Chasing Amy's Dwight Yule there, the wonderful <laughs> actor with the soul patch. There's, a, there's a, a moment when he and Jay and Silent Bob are going back and forth with the money. There's a scene where you literally see him, or there's a shot where you see him reach into his into – his, uh, uh, pants or his, his jacket or whatever and they cut away and the scene continues there's a whole fight scene there there's a shootout scene that Kevin Smith apparently either shot part of or chose not to shoot and just skipped over it and was just like yeah we're not going to have that action scene and then I highlighted this I'm looking at uh, my least favorite cut the the cut that like I, you could show to students as just an example of like wow these this this scene is put together poorly when Azrael is doing his his James Bond villain uh, explanation, there is a long speech that Azrael has about uh, the nature of evil, and I won't read the whole thing, but I will read some of the some of the, the stage direction here. Um, he does this whole thing about hell and humans aren't you know you don't understand, and uh, he explains to Serendipity and the rest of them that um, you know. Uh, I, I understand that existence is going to be wiped out. I know what I'm doing here. Um, and then there's a there's a, a moment after about half a page of explaining um, that evil is an abstract, that uh, human beings indulge in evil because there's an inherent need to be punished and so on and so forth. The stage direction says, Azrael places his hands over Bethany's eyes. For about 10 seconds, we see some of the most fucked up and disturbing imagery that can be crammed into 240 frames of film. Azrael pulls his hand away. Bethany is fried, convulsing uncontrollably. And then Azrael's line, I'd rather not exist than go back to that. And if you know the movie as well as I do, you know exactly where that would have gone because 
there's a moment where he's sitting down looking at looking at uh, looking at Bethany like on his knees basically and then it cuts back to me standing up and he just his head is facing a completely different direction and it looks like a jump cut and it's like what why why you could have put something there you could have put something visual there you could have put i understand cutting out the long speech about the nature of evil but every chance he had to take this 10 million dollars and do something visual he it's he actively chooses not to do it and i'm wondering knowing not knowing him like I do, but knowing mm. enough of his of his public persona like I do, and who he was as a filmmaker at that time, I'm wondering if he just felt insecure. I'm yeah. wondering if he just chickened out. Like he was just like, I don't think I can convey this, and I don't trust myself enough to do so. So I'm gonna just cut around all this and cut this out, and and just trust the the thing that I was celebrated for, which is the rhythm of my dialogue. And it and and for as ambitious as Dogma is as a movie, it also is like the most victim of that's his crutch that right, he, right. Le- he lean even Jay and silent Bob strike back is more visual than this movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. more action in that movie. And this is a movie where, and I understand like he's not an action director. So on, so on and so forth. He's got this critical clout. He wants to hold on to as, you know, one of those indie guys of the nineties and he wants it to be a smart movie and he wants it to be a movie, you know, that deconstructs all these ideas and so on and so forth. But every time I watch it now, probably since I was, you know, really grew out of that early period of loving it, probably since like my mid twenties, every time I go back and rewatch, I'm like, man, you you could have done so much more with this. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I wonder if he was limited by the budget, you know, because again, $10 million sure. for a movie of this size and scale, even the size of the cast, it's not a lot of money, even in 1999. Um, I, I mean, again, I couldn't, I can't guess what was in Kevin Smith's head, but would it surprise me to learn that he chickened out a little bit? No, because... You know, one of my greatest frustrations with him over the years as somebody who was once a huge fan of him is just how, like, reactionary he is as a filmmaker. And I could see him reacting to the criticism by not doing it. You know, um, people say I'm not a visual filmmaker. Maybe I'm not a visual filmmaker. Maybe I shouldn't be attempting this stuff. Let's just cut around it let's skip these moments and again some of it may have been budget related i don't know but even the fact that like you know it's he's on this trajectory of chasing amy and dogma and then dogma hits that 30 million dollar ceiling that he can't seem to get past and is a miserable experience because of linda fiorentino and the catholic league sending death threats and there's a just a lightning storm of controversy surrounding this movie and he kind of retreats back and does Jan Silent Bob strike back and then he goes to make Jersey Girl which is going to be his commercial breakout and then that doesn't really catch on and so he retreats back and he makes well shit I'll do Clerks 2 um and then he goes into another sort of experimental phase with Red State and Yoga Hosers and Tusk, and none of those are very successful or well received. Well, you forget, so you forget Zack and Mary make a porno. Which oh, is, right, 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 right. When he's angrily and openly chastising Judd Apatow and right. being like, "Right, I, I, I did, did this, this first. first, right? Yeah, I'm going to grab Seth Rogen and make a movie, and I have some affection for that movie, but 
it is, as you say, very much reactionary. And well, it's a shame. Uh, He's been on tilt for most of his career. Like, that's the thing. Like, he, he, he writes, you know, Clerks is wonderful. You know, I, Mallrats has its fans. Chasing Amy I, is, you know, I, we've, you can go back and listen to our podcast on Chasing Amy. Problematic as that movie is in the year 2021, and frankly, as problematic as it was in 1997, <laughs> uh, uh, it's still one of my movies that I hold closest to my heart. Um, but the rest of the time, he's just on tilt. He's reacting. He's just—it's such a—it's so frustrating. It is very frustrating. Part of the reason Zach and Miri doesn't work—I mean, the stuff that works in Zach and Miri is 100%. You know, because of. Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks who really sell the shit out of that movie. But part of the, the issue, and it's an issue that comes up in dogma and it's an issue that comes up in clerks too. Um, I think Kevin Smith is a funny writer. I think he writes funny dialogue in particular, like the more conversational, true to life, uh, observational stuff, the kind of stuff that we find in like chasing Amy. Mm -hmm. Um, and in clerks, you know, and clerks was such a revelation because it was like, not only was the dialogue funny, um, but it was also like, oh, this sounds like me and my friends, how we talk, you know, when we're sitting around talking about like, well, what about the contract workers on the death star and all that? let's, let's, Let's be fair. This is the way that our friends, we think we talk. We sound much more pedestrian. Oh, this, absolutely. We, I don't mean we we're think like, we smart and well-spoken, yeah. but we talk no, about stupid you, shit like yeah. the people working exactly. on the Death Star. Um, yeah. Where I think Kevin Smith continues to falter, I don't think he's good at like bits or set pieces. And so we get to Lisa Spoonhour fucking the dead guy in the back of the quick stop, and we right. get to the donkey show in Clerks 2, and we get to almost everything in Zack and Miri um, is real bit and set piece heavy. Um, and we get to the fucking excremental in Dogma, which maybe Kevin Smith thought, thought was hilarious. To me, it's like the ultimate crutch that he hides behind. And because I was listening to some of the commentary and because I watched that documentary that's on the Vulgar DVD... Right. Um, I mean, that's how big of a Kevin Smith fan I I was. I own Vulgar on DVD. Um, (laughs) He's the first thing he says in every conversation about dogma is he hides behind. I mean, it's a movie with a rubber poop demon in it. Right. It's the first thing he hides behind. So I don't know if that was just his weird way of saying, see, I'm being irreverent. I put this rubber poop monster in the movie. You can't take it that seriously. Um, and he's right. I mean, it shouldn't be taken that seriously. And that's a whole different conversation about the Catholic league and what hypocrites they are, whatever, but it's not funny in and of itself. And are we supposed to find it funny that a monster made out of poo is attacking these characters? I don't know, but it speaks to those more like set PC tendencies that I don't think he's, I, I'm hard pressed to think of an example of a time that it worked, you know, like the stink palm or whatever. I, I can't, all of his little bits that he has, I don't think any of them really work for me. Other people may find them really funny. People may really like the stink palm and the donkey show. I don't know. But for me, that stuff has never worked. That's not why I liked Kevin Smith movies. No. And I'm honestly sitting here trying to think about one that really does work for me. And I, and I, I mean, 
Jesus clerks, like when, when Dante and his girlfriend are sitting underneath the counter and people are putting change on the counter. Like, I mean, that's not even really a bit, but like, it's at least something that's stage. I don't know. Yeah. There's really, and I agree with you. There's really not a lot. There's really not a lot that he does successful. And, 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 and I understand maybe even, the, the, you know, we're talking, we're sitting here saying like, Oh, he's not visual enough. And then we're like, yeah, he sucks at visuals. And like, he hides <laughs> behind the fact that he's not visual. I understand that. But like, it does, and I think there's so much about that that I relate to, and I think I think and I, I think Kevin Smith would argue as well, just middle class East Coaster kind of thing, like just being like, look, I'm not that exceptional, and and Kevin Smith will say, to the point of you know being obnoxious, and as you say, kind of using it as a crutch, being like, oh, I'm not a good filmmaker, I'm not visual, I'm not this, I'm not that, you know, even now he's directing episodes of like The Flash and Supergirl, you know, because I, I I still listen occasionally into his 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 podcast, and you know, I we you and I before we started, we're talking a little bit about how. You know, I really love Kevin Smith commentary tracks when I was a kid, and I really do think that they were kind of some of the first podcasts the way mm-hmm. I understand podcasts now. You know, my I can trace a line between my love of Kevin Smith commentary tracks and my present day love of podcasts. Um, and I, and I maintain that the Mallrats commentary is twice as funny as the movie Mallrats. I could I could absolutely see that argument and support that. I'm not the biggest Mallrats fan. I know a lot of people are. Um, Everything, everything to me, everything in Mallrats is better in Chasing Amy or Clerks. So I, I, I but I totally understand people's love of Mallrats. Um, I, I, I think that to put it this way, there's a, there was a place and a time for Kevin Smith scripts the way we understood them then. These long drawn out bits that all and and look, I'm a I'm an Aaron Sorkin fan. I'm a Kevin Smith fan. I'm a David Mamet fan. They they all sound like they're written by one person. Everybody in a uh, Aaron Sorkin project sounds like Aaron Sorkin. Everybody in a Kevin Smith project sounds like Kevin Smith. Everybody in a David Mamet, you know, like it's yeah. it's. I I as a as a person who really prides himself on their writing, as a person who is really drawn to dialogue as a, as a form of drama. Um, I respect that. And that's one of the reasons why I really, you know, Tarantino even, you know, um, I understand though, as we said before, that this Kevin Smith is, that's not the way people really talk. You know? <laughs> it is incredibly constructed and it is incredibly. And I, and I, and, and, and for as entertaining as I find that to be, it is a bit that grows old eventually. And, and, and one of the things just to speak to clerks too, real quick, which again, despite the donkey show is a movie that I love because as I wrote in my piece, I, I, it is about Kevin Smith confronting that juvenilia. Like it's him, it's him returning to these characters and being like, have I really grown? Like, I, I don't know if I have, I don't know what it means. I'm in my forties now. I don't know what it means to grow. I don't know if I've really grown. And, and I do think he goes out of his way to write in a way that's that very much mirrors the first clerks. And I'll be very interested to see if he keeps that in clerks three Yeah. where, okay, now we're in our fifties. Um, and you know, are we still speaking with the same cadence? Are we still concerned about those same things? I know, you know, he's written several drafts of clerks three that didn't take. And then some of that made it into Jay and silent Bob reboot, um, which is a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but of course, once he had his heart attack, he says, okay, well, I, that was a point he said, he said on a on recent podcast, you know, that was the point where I knew what clerks three was missing. I hadn't yet gone through that midlife thing that I needed to, to get the inspiration for clerks three. So apparently clerks three, he gives Randall the heart attack that he had in real life. 
And so that will sort of center around. That's sort of what the movie's going to be centered around. And I'm, I'm again, I'm a Clerks 2 apologist. I'm a Kevin Smith apologist in general. I'm going to see that movie. I also can, at the same time, feel a little frustration for all the things that we're talking about, which is, what else you got? You know? Right, right. And, and... I haven't watched Red State in a long time. Have you watched Red State recently? Nope. I think I've seen it once. I think I'm going to rewatch that because he really he really wanted to take a big swing with that. I remember really liking John Goodman in that movie. The big swing, though, is just, hey, this doesn't look or feel like a Kevin Smith movie, does it? Right. Because otherwise, that movie's not a big swing. If some generic director's name was attached to that movie we might be like, Oh yeah, that was decent. That was okay. I didn't really like that. Um, but we wouldn't talk about it much. I don't think. And I I'm th- sure if I went back to every review of red state, every contemporary review of red state, it would start with something like, this is very different for a Kevin Smith. Movie. Exactly. That, and that's its yeah. place in movie history. Yeah. Because as a movie, I think it's like, okay. You know, I think Tusk is way more interesting uh, Speaking of <laughs> Tusk, is way more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Tusk was a fun. I'll just say this real quick. Tusk was a fun movie to be a part of because I remember listening to Smodcast and listening to that original episode where he and Scott Mosier read the article, and it's it's the episode is called "The Walrus and the Carpenter." If you can if you can find it, um, where they read that article that inspires that movie, and and that was such a surreal. That was a very like not early internet thing, but like a, a very interesting, the internet is leaking into pop culture right. in a bigger, in a bigger way kind of thing for me. That was a, that was a fun moment. Um, but now I, as we're talking about the sort of greater context of the movie, I'm wondering was dogma, did he make dogma too early? Like if he had made dogma in 2010, would he, do you think would be a better movie? I think in a lot of ways it would have. I think um, visually, I think it would have better been a, been a better movie. I think obviously he would have had a different cast and maybe fixed the Fiorentino problem. But I also think he could only have made it when he did. I think it's a movie driven by a sort of youthful naivete. Um and that's you know part of what I like about it. I think he wanted to take a big swing because he had the cachet to do so. Um, I think I think he would have second guessed himself a lot more if he made it in 2010. Okay, yeah, I think that's I think that's about right. Yeah, it's the kind of movie that he had to have that confidence. Yes, um, and it is very. It's a young man's movie. I mean, it's a young, angry man. Not angry, but it's you know. Right. He's driven by that, you know, he's young and dumb and, you know, full of such and such. Um, Who's has? Uh, let me check real quick. <laughs> let me go to the notes here. Uh, let me let me go to. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm seeing here. It is Ron's house. Got it. Got it. Dame, Damon's good in this. He's like, all right. He's and, and I know we're used to Damon and I, I but like I, I like Damon in this. I like what he's, you know, he's doing the whole, you know. You didn't say God bless you when I sneezed. You know, like it's, it's, I like Matt Damon as an actor, but when I watch Dogma, I'm like, is Matt Damon not a good actor? <laughs> <laughs> but I know that he is. Like, I like Matt Damon, but something about yeah. his performance in Dogma has me questioning uh, his talent. 
speaking of young uh, agnosticism, I got to throw out uh, George Carlin in this movie. Sure. Love Carlin. Always loved Carlin. Grew up loving Carlin. Uh, super happy to see him in this uh, as a as as a Cardinal Glick, the the Cardinal who blesses his his uh, clubs for a better golf game. <laughs> there's a bit there's a bit that kind of works. <laughs> yeah. Sort of as a joke. I mean, as a joke. Not yeah, as a, as a sentence, joke, it's all a, right. It requires as a joke. It works. It requires yeah. a little too much explanation. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, it's staged so poorly. Uh, yeah. Everything in this really? movie is staged so poorly. It's very frustrating. There's a weird thing with all the extras in this movie that makes it feel like a trauma movie. Like you can tell that. You know, Troma's thing is always like, hey, we're making a movie. Come on out, Troma fans, and be an extra. Yeah. And he kind of did the same thing with this, which is like, hey, View Askew fans, we're making a movie. Come on out and be an extra. And you can feel that in their performances and in the way that it's shot. Um, the great thing about Carlin in this movie, not only is he clearly having the time of his life, but then he becomes part of the Kevin Smith Repertory Company, which is right. important because he's the best thing about Jersey Girl. Jersey Girl, 100%. He is the best performance in that movie. Yeah. Um, no, no, he's he's wonderful. And and yeah, I do I do like what you said about the the back. There's a lot of background business going on in this movie. There's oh a lot of like just just background. Uh, and we got to throw out Lady Aberlin of of uh, sure, yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Rogers yeah. fame. Anybody out there with a with a young young child knows. Well, anybody who was a young child at right. one point probably knows Lady Aberlin. She plays the nun in the opening of the movie. Right. Um, which was, and, and I mean, and again, going, going back to Adam and I were joking, we watched when Adam was out, we watched Batman forever. And we were talking about, you know, like you do when you're with Adam Risky, <laughs> if any of you gets the opportunity to hang out with Adam Risky, you watch Batman forever. That's what you do. Um, and I was talking about just, you know, cause I'm 1995, I'm 10 years old and I am deep into Jim Carrey, like deep <laughs> into Jim Carrey. I am you know, at Thanksgiving, bending over and, you know, hello, can I ask you a question? Like, I was obnoxious. And, and I, and I, you know, and I was thinking of what I was watching Dogma because in early high school, I was also uh, obnoxious with the Jason Lee cadence. Um, you know, no rapture, no pleasure, no exquisite right. sin greater than central air. Like, everything had to have that build up right, and right, right. come down. Like, I was just like rewatching this going, I remember when Jason Lee was my hero, too. <laughs> I love the Lee cadence, though, because he takes the Kevin Smith dialogue and he makes it yep. his own very much. He 100% creates a way of delivering the lines. And again, I. I'm with you on Mallrats. I'm like, I enjoy Mallrats because of what it meant to me at the time and because I've listened to the commentary so many times and because I liked Kevin Smith at that point, but I don't love Mallrats. Like, I don't think it's that great of a movie. If no. not for Jason Lee's performance, that movie drops down about 100 points. Like, I, he is sublime in that movie. His, his The way he shouts every line will never not make me laugh. <laughs> And because, as you said, it's very much like Dogma. It's another example of Kevin Smith having a moment in mainstream pop culture and hiring these it actors, you know, right. like hiring right. these actors who are coming off of big things or who are poised to do big things. And I mean, with Affleck and Damon, it's a little different, but because um, they, you know, Affleck is a company guy at that point. But yeah, no, I, I and, and again, I know there's Mallrats fans out there. I'm very sorry if you love Mallrats. Oh, I think there's there's more Mallrats fans than any of his other movies. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, in terms of popularity, I'll bet that's the one that's the most beloved. I would I would agree with that. I would have to say so. Yeah. 
anything else about Dogma? I don't think so. Um, I do. I do want to say I just, and, and this is kind of just repeating the the Kevin Smith lore, but um, Muse good in this movie. Um, a lot to do in this movie. Jason Muse has a ton to do. Yeah. Um, just in terms of the, the I mean, just in terms of like you know Jason Jay and Silent Bob scenes. You know he doesn't have. He obviously has more to do in in Strike Back, but. Um, I, I know I, I, I rewatching this was thinking to myself, okay, he's, he's carrying the frame a little bit. I mean, for, you know, for a non-actor, for somebody who is, is doing his best and very much, you know, unfortunately in the throes of uh, some addiction right. issues right. Um, and really, really wonderful. If you, if you don't, if you don't follow him on social media, Jason Mews, um, really, he does a lot of like video game streams. I don't really, I don't really follow too much of the individual things that he does, but I've seen a lot of him and he's very, sort of happy and healthy right now oh, it's good. really nice to, it's nice to see that because he was you know and and that's another thing you in the commentary track you can really hear yeah. he's he's unintelligible yeah. um and uh so it's nice it's nice to see that he's really you know he's he's come together and um he, you know he's something in in jay and silent bob reboot which is a movie that's that's uh, uh <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> um he does have some nice moments in that he so does like, yeah and you and you can tell you he really wanted that to work, you know, as right. opposed to strike back where he was very much, you know, I know there's, there's a long history with that movie where he was, you know, he wasn't able to really show up for a lot of it in the way that they needed him to. So it's really, it was really cool to see him um, in this movie and to think about him in the present day as he, as he uh, has recovered and, R.I.P. Alan Rickman. R.I.P. Alan Rickman. His delivery of what the fuck happened to that guy's head always makes me laugh. <laughs> when, when he's his freak out at the end, just the whole what like. What the fuck is going on? What the fuck? Who, what the fuck is? Why that? the fuck did you hug my ears? What the <laughs> fuck like happened it. to that guy's head? <laughs> but then there's so many jokes that just fall flat, and it's like a lot of the sex jokes, a lot of the, um, you know, the. Chris Rock saying like you masturbate, but when you do, it's to guys. Yeah, well, nineties, nineties, like, but it's so weird. It's like Kevin Smith, not a homophobe, and yet every once in a while falls back on that as a source of humor, and it's so strange to me. It's like that punching down thing. It's like, well, Jay's, you know, this or that, but yeah, now he's he's got a. Could you imagine yeah. someone masturbating no. to men? <laughs> That's the joke. I mean, just one man, Patrick. I don't think that. That's ridiculous. I will say, I will say though. Just and again, I'm just kind of paging through the script as we're wrapping up here. And I mean, there's a joke on every page that makes me giggle. I mean, I will say that. Like, it is a, it is one of those, you know, jokes per minute. You yeah. know, you don't like this joke? Well, there's another one coming right, around the corner. Right, right. Um. So I, so I, so again, I, I, we, we both have, 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 have gone through this movie and, and, and understand that it is not perfect, but whether it's nostalgia, whether it's just its role in my upbringing as a, you know, as a person who loves good writing or as, you know, spirituality or whatever, or that sort of, as I said, sort of that Lord of the Rings co combination where we take, we sort of weaponize the Bible. We turn it into lore. We turn it into a game that has rules. Like I can, you know, I can roll dice and, and you know, <laughs> get powers based on like, um, I, I can, I can still be very, you know, I'm going to probably put on the rest of the commentary track when we wrap up here because I could, I could easily just watch the movie again. I love the commentary tracks. Uh, they have made me a Ben Affleck fan for life because he's so goddamn funny and, and 
in person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely the, the dogma one is, is great. Cause he's, he's, he's talking about the whole thing about like, I'm not in this scene. I don't remember this. One. <laughs> like, he's just talking about, you know, uh, he's great in the movie. Uh, the movie's a mess, yeah. but it's a mess for which I have affection. Absolutely. 100%. Thank you guys very much for listening. Uh, as always go to our website, fthismovie.com every day, email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at fthismovie and, uh, listen to us, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts schedule if i schedule everything right next week because we're recording this a little bit in advance next week should be the summer wrap-up show with adam and jb i don't know i'm a little bit behind on that so it'll actually come out like beginning of september but hopefully it's worth it and uh and uh thanks again rob this was really really fun whose house runs house come on everybody sing in your car okay in your headphones whose house runs house martin martin Thanks for listening to FS Movie.